The Water Values Podcast, Session 119. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. Well, we got a great show. It's, it is jam-packed. We have David Dolphin of IECA here and he is going to discuss uh, a, a wide range of essentially remote monitoring system uh, issues. Everything from battery life uh, to signal strength to keeping, uh, you know, how, how you keep uh, the, 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 the systems functioning how you keep the systems functioning uh, in that wet environment. Uh, and and so he's just going to address a whole range of issues uh, along that. We also have Reese Tisdale back for another Bluefield on Tap session, and uh, he's going to do a great job explaining, you know, talking about a little about the Cape Town emergency, this kind of slow-moving train wreck, as he calls it, uh, that that is uh, a major city running out of water. Uh, and he's also going to talk about a little about decentralized water systems. Uh, but before we get to uh, Bluefield on Tap and to the interview with David Dolphin, real quickly, uh, thank you to those uh, of you who've donated to the podcast. You can go to the, the website, thewatervalues.com, click on the little PayPal button, and give a donation in whatever uh, denomination that you uh, deem fit. So we'd really appreciate that. If you've been uh, enjoying the podcast, you know, hop on, give a, give a quick donation. Uh, again, any denomination is appreciated to help defray the costs of putting the podcast on. Uh, and also, I want to thank uh, a couple folks who have uh, anonymously uh, given a five-star rating to the to the Water Values podcast on iTunes. Uh, we're now up to 69 total ratings. 64 of them are five stars. So thank you so much. We added a couple of those uh, in the last uh, week or two. So thanks so much for for doing that. And if you're leaving a rating, why not leave a review? Uh, it just helps you know explain why you're giving it that that rating. Uh, helps other people. Uh, find the podcast, think, you know, learn about why they they ought to listen. So go ahead, leave that rating and uh, and and the review, and let folks know why you think the podcast deserves that five star rating. So without further ado, let's get to Reese Tisdale with the latest episode of Bluefield on Tap. Well, Reese, welcome back to Bluefield on Tap. Great to have you back. How uh, how have you been lately? Things are good, Dave. Always glad to be here. And uh, yeah, it's uh, almost the end of January, so <laughs> month into 2018. Things are moving fast. Yeah, amen. Uh, well, what's on your mind these days? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, a couple things. So I think one uh, is the recent news about Cape Town, what's happening there, uh, the impact of drought on the on the Western Cape, and sort of the fear that it may be a city that runs out of water, a large city at that. And then the other uh, secondarily is the impact of or opportunities for decentralized water systems. We're starting to see more activity in that space with Salesforce actually in the city of San Francisco, the water department, they just announced a partnership and the lot, what it looks like to be the largest on-site commercial water reuse system uh, in the country for a commercial property. So uh, I, we see that as a sign of change of things things in the U.S. market, at least. Okay. Well, let, hey, let's let's talk Cape Town first because I think uh, you know a city, a major city, running out of water. Uh, you know that that will give us a nice transition into the the, the reuse issue. But but uh, tell us what 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 exactly is going on with Cape Town. So basically, you know, South Africa, the Western Cape in particular, it's, it's a drought-stricken kind of – they're water-stressed is a better way to put it. And I think it's ongoing. It's just the nature of the geography. Um, what has ended up happening is their reservoir levels are falling below 25 percent uh, approximately. And they – given the water usage, um, the they have basically – the government has had to step in and say, all right, everybody needs to start conserving water. Um, and I think starting February 1st, they were talking about reducing the usage of water to, I think it was about 13 gallons per person a day, 
that could be used uh, down from, I think, 22, uh, which it's more recently been. I think the issue is with a reservoir in no rains, reservoir levels declining with increased water usage, conservation is the really the only solution right now. They can put in temporary desal uh, right now, which I think they're doing in some cases uh, looking to the future. But this is a slow motion car crash that's been ongoing. And in brief, you know, to give you an idea, when Bluefield was founded in 2013, one of the first pieces of research we put out was looking at South Africa and desalination and reuse systems and government policies and the need for alternative water supplies. Well, guess what? April 21st, and I think Dave, you and I talked before this, uh, it may have inched forward a little bit, but basically April is a month where the government is projecting uh, that they're going to run out of water. And so conservation, it's it's a little scary to think that uh, things could get to this point. And I think people in Southern California or other parts of the world where uh, there's water stress, it's a real concern. Right, right. And so uh, obviously reuse is probably going to be a big part of the solution, at least temporarily in Cape Town. So let's let's talk about the reuse project in san francisco and and uh can you tell us a little about that one yeah i think you know look on the heels of once again another drought in california so you know reuse has become a big issue you know it's a way to basically get more out of every drop uh what's happened is the city of san francisco uh it's a high growth area population is on the rise there so they're increasing demands on infrastructure there's new buildings going in uh, that use a lot of water. So Salesforce has just unveiled recently a new system to for on-site toilet, cooling, irrigation, if any, um, you know, re- reclaiming wastewater for those purposes um, over and over again. Uh, so basically not drinking water. But the point is what it does is it, saves the property owners, which is with whom Salesforce is working, uh, Boston Properties and Heinz. But they're also, uh, so they're reducing their water demand, ultimately. They're also reducing their wastewater discharge. But I think for the utility, it's interesting. One would think that it is going to negatively impact the utility. Well, yes, possibly from a revenue point of view. But one concern that the utility has is that they have to deal with the wastewater side, and they are already are moving towards their capacity limit on wastewater. So if there is an increased conservation reuse, such as in this case, then they're going to have to spend capital on either wastewater treatment plant upgrades or alternative uh, systems. So this is an interesting partnership, and San Francisco has been at the leading edge from a policy point of view. Any building new build with more than, I believe, 250,000 square feet is going to have to install on-site reuse. And so what we've seen over the past couple of years, we've got about 31 projects either operating or in planned, in, planned in San Francisco. So there's real move happen, moves happening that could ultimately be a real sig- uh, signal of change uh, for for water systems, but also commercial commercial and industrial property owners. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any insight into kind of the the drivers? Is the driver financial in this in the Salesforce deal, or is it uh, you know just kind of resource stewardship, or what what what's the driver? Um, I'd say it's a cost. Um, so there's there's a water savings uh, cost uh, improvement for Salesforce. I think the public utility itself. Uh, doesn't have to spend capital, so it's a benefit to them. And I think it goes without being said, you're a large company with your with your name on the building. Salesforce, they're not the property owner. While they're involved in this, there are grants. So the city is giving out grants. I don't want to uh, forget that. But I think from Salesforce point, Salesforce's point of view, it's good branding. It, it's, it's stewardship, essentially. And so there's real uh, – there's value to that for marketing, you know, obtaining talent and so on. So I think that's really interesting. And look, it's not new. Um, We saw, well, not exactly perfectly analogous, 
uh, I think we saw something similar happening in the uh, in the solar PV industry. Large commercial property owners, whether it be Walmart, Costco, I think it's Prologis, they have large rooftops. They became a channel to market for PV developers. And I think what we may start seeing is potential, you know, these large-scale property owners, uh, particularly for new build and building retrofits to install on-site uh reuse and treatment systems. All right. All right. Well, great insights. Thank you so much, Reese. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, we'll, we'll hear from you next time. Thanks again. Absolutely. Have a, uh, have a good one, Dave. Thanks. You great. too. All right. Bye. Well, as always, Reese does a great job uh, talking about uh, whatever's current in the water sector here on the Bluefield on tap segment. So uh, again, we, we always appreciate Reese's time when he comes on. Uh, and so now we're going to turn to David Dolphin with IECA, and he's, I, I found this incredibly uh, interesting, uh, that, which is why we talked for so long during this interview. I mean, it was, uh, he, he's just a, a font of information uh, about remote monitoring systems in the water industry in general, and so I think uh, you're really going to learn a lot when you listen to David Dolphin, and so I'll just get out of the way and let the interview take place. So open your valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, David, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. It's great to finally uh, be in touch with you and uh, and speak with you. Can you, uh, you know, to, to start off, uh, could you tell our listeners a little about you, yourself and how you got interested in water? Sure, David. And, and first, uh, thanks so much for inviting me. Um, this is a great opportunity, I think. Um, well, uh, I'd like to, to describe my uh, my kind of entry into the water industry as a, as a happy accident. Uh, in fact, I was um, uh, in my in my late twenties uh, working actually in the gas turbine industry. Um, I met um, the woman of my dreams, uh, turned out to be my future wife, and uh, had to move to London to to be with her. And it just so happened the first job I found was in the water industry, and I've been in the industry ever since. All right. Well, so so what roles have you filled in the water industry? Um, I started out in an engineering capacity, um, and that's really what I've been doing previously uh, in my career up until that point. And um, I particularly had a, a focus and some expertise in in hydraulic modeling. And uh, for two years, I worked um, with a company called Patterson Candy International. It was part of the, uh, the Portals Group, which is one of the granddaddies of the industry in Europe. And um, I specialized in developing um, hydro a hydraulic model for the, the design and development of water treatment plants. It's kind of early early days for that kind of thing. And and I wrote it in a compiled basic. How about that? <laughs> down memory lane. Yeah. And so what are you doing now? Um, so so, uh, so now I'm um, doing something quite different from that. I'm um, I'm uh, running the North American business of IECA. Um, uh, IECA, that's spelled A Y Y E K A, is an Israeli uh, tech company um, developing uh, communication solutions in the main for creating data from dispersed assets and particularly. Uh, focused on the water and wastewater industry. And, and in fact, I've been um, in this kind of field uh, for the last um, seven or eight years. Previously, uh, prior to uh, joining IECA, uh, I was with Veolia, um, the world's largest uh, water uh, purification treatment distribution operations company. Um, and it had, had actually been with Veolia for uh, for nearly 20 years. Um, during that time, I, I fulfilled a whole bunch of different roles, uh, including sales and marketing and general management in both industrial and um, municipal water and wastewater treatment. And if I came across IECA whilst I was um, with Veolia in North America, looking for a communication partners for some new sensing technology that we developed. And um, identified IECA amongst uh, a list of other companies for, for a, a range of reasons, really. Um, 
they they seem to really kind of tick all the boxes of all the things that we had sort of struggled to find with some other partners. Um, on you know, on the one hand, in, in a very kind of practical sense, with the devices that uh, that IACA manufactures are tough, and they're designed to operate in the uh, in the kind of environment that you find in a in a sewer or in a, um, a water distribution system. Um, they're robust in terms of the supporting technology. So um, communication is via cellular, and um, uh, IFE uses a multicellular device. So, so your um, your communication module is is agnostic as far as the as the provider of the of the uh, um, cellular signal. So it will check and make sure that, uh, that whatever um, is available, they use the strongest signal. Uh, that's pretty important. And I think also. Um, the other thing that, that we found in Veolia was that there were a lot of companies out there with a very, with a fully integrated offer, which includes sensors, includes um, the communication devices, includes um, uh, the sort of uh, the data management platform, analytics, everything. Um, but, but we're not very good at integrating with, with our systems at that time. And we didn't have the kind of flexibility from the perspective of the parameters that we were trying to create data um, about. And it's one of the things that I liked about ISO at the time is that um, the devices, um, A, worked, and B, you could connect them to just about any sensor and to just about any um, data management system as well. Right. So and I'm, I'm glad you've, you've ticked off all these, these kind of the practical side of technology um, uh, issues. And because that's, that's really what I wanted to dig into, given, you know, given the, the, your background and experience in this stuff. And so I, I think you've kind of laid out some of the common issues with technology. Uh, are there, uh, b- before I ask my next question, were there, were there other kind kind of common issues with technology that you haven't previously identified that you, you, you think we ought to mention at least? Yeah, I think, you know, maybe some of the, some of what might look like the simplest stuff, really. Um, in a lot of cases, um, where you're trying to create this data, you're in a, you know, a, a kind of hidden zone. Getting a cellular signal is not that easy. So, you know, in a, in a, in a manhole, in a sewer collection network, um, underneath a cast iron lid, you know, there's not a lot of cellular signal. So, in in some cases, um, you're not going to be able to uh, just use a device with an internal antenna. Um, so, you need to have uh, a range of different external antenna options, um, including for those cases where signal is particularly weak and you're in an environment where um, you could be under a roadway, for example. Um, being able to use an in-road antenna um, is probably the only way that you're going to be able to get a reliable signal. Um, uh, so that's that's important. Um, having the ability to uh, to multiplex the devices that's also really important, so that you can uh, maybe have one communication module, but but uh, be extracting data from a range of different sensors, or even from um, a control panel, for example. Um, if you took a, a situation like a lift station um, in a sewer collection network, for example, you, you probably want to measure a bunch of different things, including uh, wet well level, um, uh, phase monitoring for the, for the pumps, stop starts. So you can do all of that um, with one module, provided you've got uh, the ability to, uh, to multiplex. Um, and in those cases, um, you're in a situation where there's a power supply available. Very often that's not the case. So when there's a power supply available, you want to be able to use it because then um, you don't have the kind of the issue that you would have typically in a in a remote area where there's um, there's no power supply and you rely on the battery. You have to obviously have some periodic service intervals for uh, for battery change. It's important that in those cases that the intervals are of a decent duration, um, 12 months would be a minimum that you'd expect. Those are all great points. Uh, let's let's talk with the signal strength um, that you mentioned because I, I think you bring up a great point that a lot of these sensors and things like that are 
and out of the way places. And so, how, how do you know? How, how do uh, providers, tech providers, uh, come up with solutions that that can meet the the parameters of signal strength for for utilities or other other users of these sensors? I mean, what? How how is that accomplished? Well, I think I think it's it's key that uh, whoever the supplier is, you need to have a flexible platform. Um, so first of all, you need to be cognizant of what's happening in the telecommunications space. Um, so there are a lot of devices out in the in the field in the U.S. that use CDMA technology, uh, for example, for communication. And Verizon has just announced that they're going to be discontinuing CDOA from the end of next year. So you've got to be able to move with the times, um, which means really nowadays that you've got to be able to offer 3G and 4G, um, or LTE, as it's otherwise known. And the next step is going to be um, narrow, brand, narrow, sorry, excuse me, narrow band IoT. Um, and uh, that will be uh, probably the launch phase uh, for industrial Internet of Things technology. Uh, so you've got to be able to do that. And there are you know, other um, types of communication medium. Um, there's a low-power wide area network known as LP1. Um, you need to be able to operate on those networks where they're available. And you know, in the ultimate situation where you really are in the middle of nowhere, then uh, satellite communication is probably your last resort. The, the objective, however, you know, all all round should be provide 100% data security. Uh, and I've seen some in the past, some vendors claiming, you know, 90%, 95% data security. It's not good enough. You need to be able to provide 100%. Yeah. Can, can you talk about that issue? I mean, uh, uh, is is the data encrypted when it's being sent? I mean, how how I, I'm very curious about because that's one of the big things, uh, you know, with with smart meters, right? Is that the the opponents of smart meters think it's just, you know, the the utility's not going to safeguard their data, and people are going to figure out when they're not home and come rob them. Um, in addition to some other, yeah, good good, good point, David. And and um, probably if I if I explain the way that uh, IECA's technology works. Uh, it will hopefully highlight some of the uh, some of the issues that we need to be cognizant of. Uh, first thing is from a from a data security point of view. I already mentioned um, a little bit earlier that um, a a multi provider um, connectivity is really important. So let's say you've got a network of of devices um, throughout the connection network. You're not going to have to worry about the signal strength of Verizon being better in one place, AT and T better in another. T-Mobile better somewhere else, it doesn't really matter if you have a, a multi-provider approach. So the device is always roaming. And and when the device wakes up, because these are ultra-low power devices, um, of course, when the device wakes up to send a package of data, it looks around, finds the strongest signal, sends the data. Um, so that's step one. In, inevitably, at some point, there is going to be a time when the device wakes up and it's not going to find the signal. Maybe uh, there's been a lightning strike on a, on a nearby cell tower, you know, the extreme kind of situation. Um, it's super important that the device has a decent onboard capacity so it can continue to gather data from the sensors and hold it on board until such time it's able to, to transmit. And that's the case with the uh, uh, echo setup. Um, so the next thing uh, to consider is how, how secure your data is once it's uh, been transmitted. And cybersecurity here is absolutely key. First of all, the, the data has to be encrypted and should be encrypted to the latest standards. Secondly, the ECHO devices have no fixed IP. And so they are literally impossible to find uh, via the uh, the web server. So the the device itself always initiates the communication and is online for just a few seconds. So a hacker would have to be super clever to be able to find the device at all, and then they would have to be able to crack the code um, that the device would, that the uh, messaging was encrypted with. So those those are um, you know you you might ask yourself um, 
but who really cares about about uh, what levels um, the sewer is operating at? But you know, data security is a, is a big issue, and we've already seen some pretty interesting and quite disturbing hacking events taking place, particularly with some of the dumber um, uh, domestic IoT devices that are around these days. Yeah, uh, so uh, that that brings up a good point. So, so y- you're talking of a sensor that is that whose sole job is to take readings on data and send it out. Wh- what about so? So that's kind of a one way stream, and that's why that that particular device might be difficult uh, to hack. What about systems where uh, you need two way communication? Let's say that there's a sensor on a valve and and you want to shut the, you, the the readings get to a certain level. You need to shut that valve uh, and divert flows into a, into a different direction. Uh, how does that affect the cybersecurity aspects of this? If you've got uh, this is this is maybe um, a little bit outside the remit of IAC typically. Okay. Um, usually our devices are providing uh, one way communication of data to. Uh, perhaps to a client SCADA system, and then the control signals from the SCADA system would come out um, via some sort of remote telemetry through an RTU, probably. Um, uh, but, but you do highlight an interesting point, um, and that is that uh, aside from uh, from the control aspect, um, to be able to manage the the data acquisition devices that we have in the field, you need to have two way communication. And um, you need to be able to, um, first of all, configure the devices. So each one of the um, IACA's wavelet devices um, has some uh, embedded firmware and um, is capable of reporting by exception um, for events such as, let's say, um, uh, alarm levels for, for level in a sewer. Uh, would be would be one example. You need to be able to configure that from um, from your web browser because you don't want to be visiting site every time you want to make a change. Um, and you need to be able to make sure that that data is held locally within within the device. So there you have a two way communication. But because um, the the device itself initiates the the passage of information, what would happen? Um, would be the device would wake up um, on its normal kind of routine, would send a um, would send a package of data, and at that time it would be available for uh, information flown the other way. So you, if you like, you, you do your pre-configuration. Um, it could be also be firmware upgrades um, ready to go. They basically um, are transmitted during this kind of window while the uh, while the devices initiate the communication. Got it, got it. Um, so that's a, who who could have thought we could have talked for that long based on essentially signal strength, cybersecurity issues. Uh, I, I think that it's a, that's that's a fascinating aspect of all this. What about um, you know you you kind of alluded to it earlier. You know the kind of fitness for the environment. You know leak proof. Uh, you know is 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 the how what are the issues surrounding surrounding that um, concerning. Uh, you know, because these devices are going to be in wet environments and, and they need to be rugged and, and all that. Can you talk a little more about, uh, you know, the, the technology that's actually in there and that how it can stand up to the to the, the, the environment it's placed in? For sure. Yeah. I mean, these are the kind of, this is what I call the sort of like the nuts and bolts um, uh, issues. And uh, you've got a couple of issues here. The first thing is how do you design an enclosure? Um, that's going to be okay when it's submerged in sewage. Um, it's going to be okay if it gets hot. It's going to be okay if it gets cold. It's probably going to be okay if somebody uses it as a step. Uh, obviously, we'd rather that that isn't the case, but, you know, these are the <laughs> things that happen. In, in, in a way, that's all relatively straightforward, so long as the device is designed robustly out of the right materials. Um and and so you'll see a lot of devices on the market which use kind of industry standard enclosures. IECA went uh, one step further and, de- and designed an enclosure that was specifically um, for these kind of environments. So it is very rugged. But you do have a couple of challenges uh, because it's a battery-powered device. The battery's inside. 
um, and you have to change the batteries. So you've got to have then uh, a means of being able to do that in the field reliably and in such a way that you can reseal the device effectively afterwards. Um, so every wavelet has double seals, um, uh, both both gaskets and also the uh, uh, the bolster to hold it together as uh, sealing gaskets too. And we typically would recommend that every time a battery has changed, that you change the gasket there too, um, to try and uh, uh, minimize the opportunity of you know, seal damage. Um, also, you know, every material on Earth, to some extent, is porous. And so although uh, an IP68 device can, can operate submerged under meters of water for days on end, uh, in a humid environment, under a manhole cover, in a lot of uh, water or wastewater applications, is generally speaking, a pretty humid environment, you do tend to get um, some um, ingress of moisture, even through, you know, industrial-grade plastics. So a couple of things important there. First thing is, is our devices are always packed with um, desiccants um, so that uh, we minimize those effects. And there all, there's also an inbuilt humidity sensor. So you can see um, one of the data streams that you get, um, not just the data that you're trying to measure, um, but there are multiple data streams um, provided to the user on the health of the of the device itself. So there's a battery stream for uh, sorry, there's a uh, data stream for uh, for humidity. There's one for battery life. There's one for GPS signal, and a whole uh, bunch of other things. So it's not just um, the actual parameters you're trying to measure that you can see, but you can see how the device is working, and those things are really important yeah. for remote device management and fleets. You know, particularly when you if you've got one or two of these devices, um, that's one thing. If you've got a, if you've got a couple of thousand, um, then you really need to be able to do this from a centralized uh, location. Right. So, so you just mentioned GIS, and and I, I don't know why I didn't think of this before, but I, I'm very curious about interfacing the technology. You know, so let's say you've, you've got all these sensors, and your 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 primary goal, let's say, is to collect data just to, to monitor flow or to see if there's a problem coming up. But uh, does the technology does that allow you to kind of interface with, say, a GIS map of the system, so you can you can see hot spots, uh, and you know. I, I'm just trying to think about uh, uh, using the data to spot bigger trends, uh, to you know things of that nature. I mean, how 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 does that technology assist the utilities in in, in identifying those types of things? Okay, so so uh, uh, in, in a couple of different ways, David. Actually, um, so so uh, first off, uh, all the devices have a, a GPS module, so. Um, they will position themselves if they're able to see a satellite. Uh, if you're in a situation where you can't see a satellite, you can position through the user interface, you can position the device on a map yourself, either by drag and drop or using um, or inputting the coordinates. So, yeah, so first of all, um, on the IEPI user interface, when you look at the device itself, the first thing you see um, is a map. And you can see a bunch of pins all over the map, which are indicating where the devices are. And you can see at a glance um, the the pins are either green, yellow, or or red. And that will indicate, you know, as a sort of, if you like, a real kind of high-level um, overview, you can see where there are some issues. And very, very quickly, you just click on one of the pins and drill down to, to see what's happening. Um, so, so that's the, that's the first way. The other way is um, uh, one of the things that AIF has specialized in is exporting the data from our systems to client's own systems. And that could be SCADA, uh, but it could be um, CMMS, um, uh, Maintenance Management Systems. Uh, it could be GIS mapping. It could be almost anything. Um, so we've got all the kind of standard protocols in place to be able to, and a developed API, be able to push that data to to other systems. So, and uh, we saw that as critical because, um, you know, most uh, municipalities have a pretty well developed uh, SCADA capability um, already. It's usually just um, looking at the kind of either the main bits of infrastructure like pumping stations out in the network or the plant itself. 
So they want to be able to integrate the data, the extra data that we're providing alongside that so they can see everything together. That's of critical importance. Uh, the next question I was going to go down was power management. You'd, you'd mentioned this earlier. You said batteries need ought to have a 12-month life. Uh, can, you, can you talk a little about uh, how – uh, batteries are evolving, and you know, in terms of, are we going to see on? I don't want to say on-site power generation, but I mean, are we going to talk about uh, kind of renewable batteries down in there, so that you they'll always you won't have to worry about changing them? Uh, how is the how is the shelf life for the battery um, been extended with with other recent technology? Can you address some of those issues? Well, you have that right topic which we could probably talk about for a couple of hours, but I'll try <laughs> and be as. as as concise as I can. So there's a number of pieces to this, really. The first one is is the actual uh, management of power itself. So first of all, uh, let's say you start with um, a low-power center. Um, and these are very often semiconductor devices. Um, they're operating at super low um, voltage and, and current uh, microamp-type um, devices. And in some cases, they're on only when they're taking readings. Um, and and then the management of those devices is is done by the wavelet device itself. So the wavelet device itself is a low power device, and and it is also going to be providing power in a lot of cases and managing that that um, power um, for the sensor itself. So in a typical situation, you have um, a sampling rate, let's say every few minutes. Um, and, and then a transmission rate, which is user-configurable, which would be of the order of probably some hours. So, so the, in the meantime, the, um, the device will, will store the data, and at the time when it's, when it's ready to transmit, it will send the package of data uh, complete. So let's say you'll have a full data set, which is reported on a periodic basis. And then if you remember, I mentioned earlier the reporting by exception. Since the device has got um, uh, configura configurable alarm threshold, if you like, um, which the user configures through the interface, if you, um, if you hit one of, those, uh, one of those thresholds, the device will do uh, a few different things. Uh, the first one is it will send a package of data immediately. Um, second one is it will send an alert. Uh, by email or SMS to a list that is also configurable. And then the third thing that will happen is it will move from one state, if you like, to the next. And these states are user configurable too. So you could have a situation where, let's say, you were uh, sampling every five minutes and you were transmitting every four hours in a kind of relatively steady state environment. And once you move into this new environment, you could change those parameters so that, you, let's say, you sampled every one minute and you transmit it every hour. And then there are multiple thresholds like this. So if you get to the emergency um, uh, situation, you would be you could be transmitting data almost all the time. So you've got pretty much real-time uh, view of what's happening out in the network. And you can do that then. If this, presupposing that the events are, are not happening all the time, then you can you can get this kind of this real-time um, uh, eye on the ground without really compromising um, battery consumption because the one thing that is uh, that currently um, is the biggest uh, drain on the battery is the, the actual transmission of data. This, by the way, is going to improve um, as, as we move towards lower power systems like NBIOC, um, but it's also always going to be a significant factor. In terms of battery development itself, because it, yeah, that's one of the questions you asked, um, battery efficiency, as we know, has got um, greater and greater. And in fact, the the, uh, um, the power density of batteries these days is, uh, is amazing. Um, the IECA, uh, the battery that the that IECA uses, is actually a military grade battery, um, which is a, a two D cell battery. It's pretty small, and um, it's it has um, a battery capacity um, of 32 uh, volt amps, uh, which is about double the capacity of the, the battery you have in your car. 
and yet it's the size of, of a mobile phone. It's obviously thicker, but um, smaller than a mobile phone, in fact. So, so battery technology has developed enormously, but that's not a rechargeable battery. There are some devices on the on the market that are using. In fact, there's a, there, there are a, a virtual industry emerging in in uh, devices which are extracting therm- geothermal energy from the from the ground and the surroundings that are um, extracting um, vibration energy from um, uh, from manhole covers that are that use intrusion devices into into pipe work to run turbines to generate power. So I do think this is going to be quite an interesting industry um, over the next two to three years. And you know that will grow alongside, I think, the uh, the better and better power management. Yeah. Um, so who knows? We might end up in a situation where we have devices that can be um, positioned in the field and never need um, a service visit. Yeah, I mean, it, you're, I think you're right. It sounds like an absolutely uh, fascinating time to be in that uh, in that field. Uh, one of the last things I want to talk about on the, the practical side of the technology was obsolescence. I mean, you kind of mentioned it. Uh, alluded to it with Verizon phasing out CDMA, uh, but can you talk about technological uh, obsolescence and, and kind of how that fits together with the payback for the installation of these systems? Yeah, I think that uh, first of all, any any player in this industry needs to be constantly developing. Um, it's it's microelectronics. It's the electronics industry. It's it's no different really than. Um, than you know the smartphones that we have, things are moving at a pace. Um, you have to stay ahead of the curve. Um, so that's that's the key. That's key. Um, that said, of course, um, you have uh, devices that are, that are sold at a given time, knowing what you know at that time, using the the um, technology that's available, the communication technology that's available at that time. Um, it's incumbent really on the on the manufacturers of these kind of devices to develop them in such a way that it is possible to upgrade them with minimum fuss and minimum cost in the future. Uh, so, so the the way that um, the um, the PCBs in the in the Echo device are developed is modular. So, if at a certain point you move to a new um, type of um, communication technology, it's possible to to change out part of um, the uh, the electronics and do that relatively simply. Um, that's that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably more important, probably more important is to be always on the edge of that of the curve. So, you know, our, our device is currently three G, four G. Um, we already have um, developed um, narrowband IoT devices. Uh, we're just waiting for the um, for the operators to actually start deploying their networks. So um, we're ready. Um, the telcos are a bit behind the curve as far as we're concerned, but you know that's where we're going. And uh, I don't ever expect us to be looking backwards and and you know worrying about our our CDMA uh, inventory, um, our 2G inventory, uh, for example. Um, I've seen some of our some of our competitors have to do that, and I think that's 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 something that, that you have to have built into your business model. Okay, well, th- that's all great information. Now, uh, if we can kind of step back from kind of the the nitty gritty on the technology, and and can you kind of share some of what you perceive as the regulatory drivers or what are what are the regulatory drivers uh, for the industry right now in, in pushing utilities towards technological solutions? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, um, um, the, in the U.S., the Clean Water Act um, still, still lives. Um, and uh, uh, I think it's in 2002, the EPA uh, implemented new legislation, legislation as far as uh, um, combined sewer overflows is concerned. Um, there's 37 uh, major consent decrees in place. These are um, legal agreements between the EPA and and cities, uh, the ma- major cities in North America, um, to 
uh, change their change their ways, if you like, and um, develop new ways of, of operating so that they minimize the overflows. And and by the way, there are there are thousands of other smaller utilities that are um, operating um, systems which either have overflows or have issues with influences infiltration. Um, where you know there's the risk that they're going to they're going to overflow, the risk that they're going to contaminate, and they all have also have reporting responsibilities to their to their local regulators. Um, so you've got um, legal instruments in place. Um, you've got uh, reporting that that needs to be done from a compliance perspective. Creating data um, remotely can work for both of those those environments. I mean, probably our biggest uh, partnership is the uh, the city of Cincinnati is deploying deploying a real time um, uh, sensing and control system for their for their sewer network, um, and we were very fortunate to be chosen as the wireless telemetry partner for that uh, for that project, and I think they're leading the way with a, with a new way of doing things, uh, which uh, best estimates say is forty times less expensive. Um, to comply with legislation um, as a conventional um, civil infrastructure-based type of solution. A civil infrastructure solution was normally known as a deep tunnel, which is basically just increasing the capacity of the network. So yeah. that whatever is thrown at it, it's not going to overflow. Um, so so the, these real-time um, control systems, um, they're emerging. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I believe will be seen as the new tech, the new way of of uh, resolving these kind of issues. Far less intrusive too. Yeah. Uh, never mind the cost. You know, you don't you don't have to dig your city up to uh, uh, to be able to implement them. Yeah. So, can you talk a little about? How, I mean, how are you how are you coming up with the forty percent less expensive figure? I mean, what what what's that based on? Uh, uh, I didn't do it. Um, <laughs> it's the city. It's the city of Cincinnati that, uh, that reported those numbers. So I think it was just um, they looked at the project overall. They looked at the cost of um, implementing a civil infrastructure solution. They looked at the cost of implementing a, uh, a green infrastructure solution. And then they looked at the, the cost of doing it with – and, in fact, they, the latter, they actually do, of course, they, they, since they're implementing the, the real-time control solution, they have real data. Um, to base that on, and there's you know there's quite a lot of data in the public domain about particularly the uh, um, the deep tunnel um, flood cost. So I think they've done a model. I don't know for sure because um, because I don't have the detail, uh, but they've done a model, and uh, those are the numbers that they came up with. I forget what the absolute numbers are now, um, but but there's a ratio of uh, one to forty between the top and the bottom. Yeah, yeah. So th- so that just sounds like um, you know kind of an integrated approach to to technology and problem solving, uh, marrying those two up so that you, you can save money on the, the, the infrastructure, which is just a crushing cost for our utilities right now. Yeah. And un- unfunded. I mean, these consent decrees are unfunded. It, it's, it's, you know, it's future costs for the residents of the, of those cities. So, you know, city residents should care that something is 40 times less expensive than, uh, um, than another. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Well, uh, you know, uh, David, you've been absolutely terrific. I've learned so much, uh, speaking with you and, and, and tapping into your knowledge on, uh, kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the technology, uh, area, uh, for the, for those folks who want to find out more about you and IECA, where can they go to get that information? Well, uh, first you can go to our website, that's IECA.com. That's A-Y-Y-E-K-A.com. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel, so uh, if you want to go to YouTube and just type in Ayeka, you'll see that we have a channel there, and I think we've got something like 17 videos on that channel, which give you a, a, a nice kind of insight, a mixture of uh, different uh, topics um, uh, for you to perhaps have a look at. Terrific. Well, well, David, I really appreciate you coming on and taking part of your day off uh, to, to speak with us. So thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care, Dave. Bye. Thank you. Well, I hope you liked that interview with David Dolphin of IECA. I thought he was absolutely terrific. Uh, 
his knowledge of all these remote monitoring systems uh, and the sensors and all those types of things I thought was just phenomenal. And who, who, you know, who would have thought you had to really get so granular in thinking about these issues when you're looking into uh, some sort of remote monitoring system. So I, I really appreciate him coming on. Hopefully you found that interesting as well. I mean, I thought we could have talked for a lot longer on, on that issue, but in any event, let me know what you thought about the podcast. You can, you can leave your comments on the show notes for this, uh, this episode, and you can find those at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one one nine. Uh, again, leave a comment on those show, show notes, or you can email me at David at the water values, David at the water values.com. You can also tweet at me at my Twitter handle, which is at DTM one nine nine three. And you can tweet and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. And again, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, feel free, you know, leave, if you've been enjoying the podcast, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, whatever podcast directory you're listening on. That would be much appreciated. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me thank you for tuning into the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice further this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment i'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.